The following is a hoop ball presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. Everybody, hey oh, hey oh, hey oh! We are back for another week of Fantasy NBA today. I am Dan Bespris. It's Monday, and I feel good. I feel good. I got a chance to sit down and watch the two most recent episodes of The Last Dance. That brought me a nice measure of joy in these weird times. We continue to settle in. We'll be talking about those on today's podcast. Thought there were a couple of interesting little nuggets mixed in there, but mostly. Our Monday shows, you know, five to ten minutes on Last Dance, but it's really about key lessons learned from a season mostly gone by. That's what Monday shows are about before we pivot on Tuesdays back into our whatever you want to call it, post-mortems is what we'll just continue to use since, you know, at this point, at, at a certain point, it's just... You're splitting hairs a little bit. Season is basically over, but we don't really know. And as I've said before, we're going to call them postmortems because at this point, even if we do get additional regular season games, it's not going to change most of the big picture items, the big ticket stuff that's happened to this point. Last week, we gave our number one lesson from a season gone by, and it revolved around usage. It revolved around usage, because I didn't want to spend too much time on things we've done before. I thought that was a relatively new one. Those of you that, and then I, you know, it hit me over the weekend, because I was starting to prep for this show, and I thought, well, you know, I've got until after I finally get around to watching the uh, episodes three and four of The Last Dance, so I don't have to get all my thoughts together. But one of the things that occurred to me that, as a podcast host, as a broadcaster in general, you have to assume that someone is listening to your show that's never heard it before. So, and, I, and, I, and I'll admit, I've done a pretty poor job over the last three years of actually writing down the things that I've talked about on this podcast. Yeah, some of them are kind of kicking around in the back of my head. And, you know, for instance, I know we've talked extensively about the way that I categorize players going into a fantasy draft, my, my sort of bucket theory. And I've talked extensively about how I draft in the early rounds versus the middle rounds. I've talked extensively about how I deal with injured players at the beginning of the season. These are all things that we've gone into as key lessons learned in the past. We've, we've done those during previous years' postmortems. But at the same time, they're going to come back up again. So I don't want to dedicate an entire show to some of that stuff, but I do want to make mention here, and then I'm sure it'll come up again, that some of our older tenets, the building blocks upon which we have created this particular fantasy strategy, whatever you want to call it, the Bespris method, made up crap, um, is those main things, meaning don't shoot yourself in the foot in the first three rounds of your draft, don't draft injured players because they always take longer to come back than expected, and it always takes time for them to acclimate, and a lot of times it leads to other injuries. That's the kind of thing, you know, you, you, it's like with a car. When one thing goes wrong, you take it into a shop, they fix that, something else breaks down. You just, you have to be 
the all of the pieces have to be working at the same time. As soon as these guys start to favor one leg, one arm, one knee, whatever it happens to be, that's when other stuff happens. And you saw with Paul George this year as the most recent and strongest example of this, you know, this contemporary season is and his was shoulder stuff, but he was just wasn't fully in shape. The season got going and other stuff started to break down. Now, is it a one-to-one correlation that like multiple shoulder surgeries are going to cause weird groin and leg and hamstring injuries? No. It's definitely not a straight line from one to the other, but there's a curved line that gets you there and it's not that bent. It's basically saying, look, this guy didn't have his normal offseason. He didn't have his normal training camp. He didn't have his normal ramp up. He's behind everyone else. And he's not alone. Take the bigger injuries of this offseason. Victor Oladipo was a guy a lot of people sat on, hoping he would play at some point during the year. And he did, but he really only got good the last week. Prior to the suspension, I should say, obviously, the last week. There was nothing. We're almost seven weeks out from the NBA getting suspended, by the way. Almost seven weeks out. And we do have a piece of news on that front. That'll actually be the first thing that we talk about in today's podcast. Again, this is Fantasy NBA Today, a hoop ball presentation. That's hoop-ball.com. I am Dan Bespris, D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S, if you'd like to give me a follow on Twitter. I know this is the time of year where Twitter followers disappear because all the bots get kicked out. Uh, But if you happen to be new and you're just looking for random basketball content, feel free to check me out. Did finally get around to putting out the tweet about our sales team, and there was a pretty good response to it. So if you guys are thinking about it, hit me up. At Dan Bespris on Twitter. Again, that's D-A-N, Dan. That's the easy part. Bespris is B as in boy, E-S as in Sam, B as in boy. Again, R-I-S as in Sam. We are looking for basically, I guess the short, I hate to call it telemarketers because the first thing you think of is someone that's like, how's your long distance coverage? But that's effectively what we are looking for right now. You can be anywhere in the world and if you're stuck right now with nothing to do, and I don't know, maybe you, maybe your job got eliminated, maybe you're on break, maybe you're hoping your job comes back in the next two months, I, I don't know what your situation is, but if you've been thinking about working on a career jump, thinking about jumping into sports, the way to do that is to build it on a base of sales. There's a hard way and there's an easy way in this, folks, and I, I've been down it. There are many broadcasters that are doing it both ways. It's not perfect. Neither way is perfect. Because in one way, you probably have to do more stuff that you're less passionate about. But from a sustainability standpoint, especially if you're a couple years older than, say, you know, right out of college or something like that, being able to make some sales in whatever field it happens to be allows you to pay for the the sports career, whether it's, you know, sports writers are not making a ton of money these days. Sports broadcasters, unless you're one of the top programs, you're not making a ton of money either. I'll tell you right now, I've worked a lot of different sporting events in my life, and there are very few places where you can get more than a couple hundred bucks for a day's work, which isn't bad. I'm not going to turn my nose up at that, but also you're not doing it every day, you know, once, twice a week, something like that. So there's the hard way, which is 
you just grind and grind and grind. And if you're a writer, you get a thousand individual writing jobs. And hopefully each one of those gives you 50 to a couple hundred bucks and, and you're hanging in there. Or on the broadcast side, kind of the same deal. Or there's the easy way. Which for some is actually the hard way. You know, if, if you hate being on the phone that much, I get it. Then that's the hard way for you. But if you don't mind being on the phone and selling some stuff, come on down. Hit me up. You can also write an email to teamhoopball at hoop-ball.com. We're looking for people that have time right now. Time and sales experience and an opportunity to make a truckload in commission. But you got to have some time and you certainly have to have the drive. Because this is, it's not going to be what you expect. I'll tell you right now. Anyway, thank you to those that responded to the tweet. If any of you are thinking about it here on the podcast, this is a perfect time to do so. For the, the first piece of news, uh, NBA-related in a long, long time, is that the NBA is now targeting May 8th as a time to start opening up practice facilities. It's been phrased a couple of different ways. Now, first of all, May 8th is next Friday... So it's not exactly, you know, a couple days away. It's still uh, almost two weeks, 11 days away, I believe, from now. So there's still a lot of time between now and then. A lot can change. I think they're saying that that's the, the, the front end of what they were hoping to do. But it also sounds like one of the issues is they want to have all the teams opening their facilities at the same time. They want to make sure that players are not turning to unsafe gyms, which is, if I had talked about unsafe gyms about three months ago, I'd have a, I'm sure we'd all have these very weird thoughts, you know, a seedy little back alley place with a, a, a barbell and a couple of weights you can clamp onto that thing. Now, of course, it's just any place that's like, you know, you're going to go to like an LA fitness, you're going to go work out in somebody else's sweat and grime, or... What the NBA is hoping to do, I believe, at least from what I'm reading here in these reports, is open up a controlled environment. Players that wear masks and gloves, trainers and staff that wear masks and gloves, equipment that gets sanitized between every player that uses it. It's an opportunity for players to get back out on a court, lift some weights, try to start slowly getting back into the process without having to sort of seek out weird other avenues of doing so, especially for the many, the vast majority of players that don't have a basketball court in their house. Some of these guys do. Like, listen, LeBron's got this this ridiculous mansion that's a few miles from us here in Los Angeles. I'm sure he's got everything he needs in his house. But the kid that's just coming in out of college or the, you know, the lifelong veterans minimum guy, those dudes ain't living in houses with a, with a bunch of basketball courts inside and, and an entire workout facility. This would be a colossal step in just starting the process, especially if they can pull it off without any infections. We're hitting a point now, folks. I'll bring this up. And listen, you know, there's all these reports. I don't want you guys to think that I'm trying to paint everything with sunshine and roses because it's definitely not. There are plenty of reports about uh, additional spikes in potential cases in the fall. If places open up too soon, you could see, you know, uh, a seven or eight week span of the virus kind of spreading again within the community. So things are things are imperfect. And testing still isn't where it needs to be to open things up at, at a, a larger scale. But it's a lot better than it was. 
at the beginning of March when pretty much no one was getting tested. And now there's like 350,000 a day. So, you know, not enough, but a lot better. And please don't try to interpret anything I'm saying right now as political. This is exclusively logistical analysis, meaning if things start to reopen slowly, you need to be able to test, they call it contact tracing, so that they can figure out where things are happening and where people need to go into a quarantine on a smaller scale. Instead of shutting down an entire country or a whole state or even a whole city, you can shut down a pocket, a street, an office building, whatever it might take, because social distancing is still in effect and because large gatherings are still not happening. So there's a way to do it, and we're, we're starting to move in that direction. I, I bring this up because, th- listen, this all ties into this weird May 8th target date. And by the way, I, I, honestly, I'd be a little bit surprised if places started to open up on May 8th. You might see a couple, but probably not many. But the mere fact that it's even getting lobbed around is basically the NBA saying, look, players, don't go do something insane. We're still working on this, and we're not that far away from getting you guys back into what we believe is a safe environment. And I think that translates pretty well to the the population at large, all of us here. And it's different in different states. There are states, as we've talked about a thousand times, that shut down way too late. And so they're still kind of on the front end of their curve. There are also states like California that are a bit more towards the back end of the curve. We shut down extremely early out here. A few weeks ago, even as recently as last week, I woke up in the morning and I completely ignored all news related to COVID-19. Dodged it. Didn't want anything to do with it because there wasn't anything happening. We were right in the middle. And now it turns out we were kind of towards the back end of the middle. But we were right in the middle of this kind of nebulous, all of the news is just recycled, Effectively, we're all just stuck. Close your eyes, do whatever you got to do to get through the day, wake up the next day, do it again. Because there was no end date. The start date was so far in the rear view, it felt like 12 years ago. And so there was no point in digging through everything. But now you're starting to see these little trickles. And some of them, let's admit, are a bit idiotic places that are opening up way before they're ready to. But the mere fact that we're starting to see even some of the more safe areas discussing how to open things up. What's the path? What's the stepwise process to getting a little bit of normalcy back in? And by the way, to those of you that haven't been seeing it, and I want to move on from this uh, very soon because you guys know I don't like to bog the show down with a whole bunch of virus stuff, but you know the NBA putting out this, this May 8th target date, you, you kind of have to to pick it up a little bit, the the word on the street is that things are going to be very baby step wise, meaning, you know, you might see a business reopen, and if it's like a retail establishment, and normally they'd allow 30 people in the store, they might allow six. I wouldn't even feel comfortable going in there with six people, but some people would, And what that does is it's going to allow for things to spread, but hopefully not so rampant 
that it can't be contained if something starts to shake loose a little bit. So that's where we're at right now. We're, 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 I don't want to say we're on the downslope, but I don't think we're on the uphill anymore, at least not in a lot of places. Some, perhaps, but not all of them. The last dance was freaking sweet. I actually like these ones uh, far more than the first two episodes. I don't know if I'm... I haven't really been on Twitter all that much the last two days or so. We, we're we're childcareless these days, so we're if I can get to my computer, it's a stroke of amazing fortune. But these episodes were amazing. The Dennis Rodman episode was fantastic. I don't know what you want to call the this episode four. It wasn't really all about Rodman. It was sort of a lot about Phil, actually. A lot of Phil Jackson stuff. There was a lot of Phil Jackson at the beginning of the episode and a lot of the getting up and over the Pistons. There's a bad boys. I guess you could say that these these two episodes were Rodman, Phil Jackson, and the bad boys. And then the first championship. I love learning things about these guys that I that I definitely didn't know at the time because I was eight. <laughs> right? Like how much of the the Dennis Rodman stuff am I really gonna be paying attention to? Well, okay, now his craziness, I was like fifteen, so that was a little bit different. Uh Rodman was on the Pistons for the... And I like the way the, the documentary does jump around a little bit. But, you know, Scottie Pippen, the, the migraine game in 1990, Doug Collins being sort of the, iterate, the first iteration of Sweaty Coach. I'm sure we've all seen Sweaty Coach over the years. I think there was one in New Mexico that was just the sweatiest son of a gun I've ever seen in my life. Uh, Doug Collins, Sweaty Coach, Phil Jackson, and, and how he worked his way through coaching in the Dominican Republic, or was it Puerto Rico? I already lost track. I think it was Puerto Rico. Biff that already. Great job, Dan. You watched it, and you immediately go on a podcast and can't get the damn information right. Uh, just a lot of really cool stuff in those two episodes. I, I don't, you know, there isn't a whole lot of detail that I want to go over on this show because it's not like it's changing the way I look at things. One of the thoughts, and maybe this was the one big thought I had as I was watching these uh, last two episodes of The Last Dance. And it's the uh, Michael Jordan hitting big shots type of deal, which is, and you almost have to go to his basketball reference page to really truly comprehend some of the stuff that he was doing. Michael Jordan shot 50% for his career from the field. That's including, by the way, a couple of seasons in Washington at the end of his career where he was taking high volume and shooting 42 and 44% those two years. For the bulk of his career, Jordan was well above 50%. Their first championship year, 1991, he shot 54% from the field. 85% at the free throw line and averaged 31 and a half points per game. Jordan was crazy, man. He was absolutely nuts. He averaged 2.7 steals per game and a block that year. Six boards, five and a half assists. Again, 54% shooting. Yeah, I know guys weren't taking three-pointers back then, but crap. Look at how many big men don't even shoot 54% right now. And he's doing this on fadeaways and bank shots and leaners and gliding and up and under and the... Uh, one of the, oh, one of the other cool things I thought, and I know I'm bouncing off the walls with this thing, but I'm just, I just, I thought it was so fun to talk about this for a couple minutes on the show was 
seeing the footage of when Jordan did some of his most iconic shots. The ones where he's shooting over a defender, like the ELO shot against Cleveland. Of course you know that's against Cleveland. Or, And, and they're not at the uh, Brian Russell shot late in his career. We're not at that one yet. But they're the, the crazy acrobatic shots that occurred in between those two. The one against the Lakers in the finals that year in 91 where he goes up with the right hand. I still don't really know why he switched hands, but he switched hands and then went back with the left that's the craziest crap I ever seen. What a monster, right? What a monster. Also kind of cool to see the some of the uh the rosters, what they looked like for those Bulls teams. By the way, Scottie Pippen that year in 90-91 averaged 18 points, 7 boards, 6 assists, 2.4 steals and 1.1 block per game. And he shot 52% from the field that season. Interestingly, Scottie Pippen was never a very good foul shooter. I don't think they're going to talk about that in the documentary because it's really more of a footnote for fantasy enthusiasts. That was a, few, that was a full decade before I played my first year of fantasy basketball, the year 2001. I want to talk about our... I want to talk about our our lesson learned for the week, effectively. Because we spent enough time on this other stuff. We're already 20 minutes into this bad boy. Last week, we talked about usage being a big deal. This week, I wanted to talk about something that's going to go against the grain on almost everything that I have taught here on this podcast. But I will go into detail onto why it sounds like it goes against the grain, but in actuality, doesn't really do so. And that is feeling more comfortable shooting your shot in fantasy drafts a little bit earlier than perhaps my teams might normally do so. You guys know I absolutely adore going easy the first three rounds. You can look at all of my teams And the biggest chance I took in any of them was Kawhi Leonard, which I felt like this year was actually not that big of a chance. That was a very small leap of faith. I had a bunch of Kawhi Leonards because I had a bunch of picks towards the end of the first round. I had two leagues where I had picks about halfway through, and in those I ended up with Nikola Jokic and Damian Lillard. Surprise, surprise. Second round, I ended up with some Jimmy Butlers, a bunch of Andre Drummonds, picks kind of towards the middle front end of the second round. And then in one league where it was a little bit more, uh, I was punting. I thought I might punt turnovers, and I drafted Trey Young and uh, ended up trading him in that league. It was a, it was a, a series of bad decisions that I, I, I'm okay with the Trey Young pick, but abandoning ship was a little bit unwise. The question has become over the years, and I ask myself this basically every single season going into fantasy draft time, when, when is it okay to start going off script effectively? When do we start ad-libbing? And what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is, when do you stop just grabbing the guy that's falling too far and start grabbing the guy that you want on your team? Because there is a sort of battle, a, a headbutting that occurs between small values 
and potential upside. I'll use an example from uh, one of my leagues where I am actually very distressed with some of my draft picks in the middle rounds of this league. First four rounds, I ended up with Kawhi Leonard, Jimmy Butler. By the way, I had the 12th pick, so I was on the turn. Kawhi Leonard, Jimmy Butler was my first turn, 12 and 13. 24 and 25, uh, excuse me, uh, blah, 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 36 and 37, I should say, Chris Paul and LaMarcus Aldridge. I took the guys that were falling to me, and because I had the first pick of round four, which is to some degree an extension of round three, I didn't feel like I needed to do anything wild yet. LaMarcus had still fallen to me. There was no reason for me to take my eye off the prize. Round five, on the other hand, and, and this is where... You know, it's, it was a situation that developed quickly for me. But looking back, there were a few different ways to actually go about my business. Round five, I had a queue, and I set it generally for the entire round, and I usually try to put about eight guys in my queue when I'm, I'm down on the turn like that. My queue had Rob Covington, Al Horford, Brooke Lopez, Kevin Love, Tobias Harris, Malcolm Brogdon, Jonas Valanciunas, and I believe C.J. McCollum? Was the last guy in my queue? Uh, no, it might have been Zach Levine. I may be screwing that up. I'm probably missing one guy. Regardless, all of those guys got drafted in the 11 picks before me. All of them. It's an almost unbelievable turn of events. I'm watching the thing and I'm going, surely one of these eight guys is going to make it to me. There's only 11 guys that need to pick before me. And boom, boom. Eight of the 11 picks, my cue evaporated. So what happens in that moment? And this doesn't happen in every draft. In fact, it doesn't even happen once a year. This, I think that's the first time that's happened to me probably in two or three seasons. But it doesn't have to be that severe for it to be like something that happens much more frequently. Say, for instance, you've set a queue of three or four guys and you're six or seven picks away and they all go away. Set a queue of two or three guys, and it's only five picks away, and they all go away. It happens on a much smaller scale, extremely frequently, whereas, you know, eight out of 11 picks disappearing off the board, yeah, that's a less frequent occurrence, but it just did happen to happen to me. The way that I normally deal with this type of situation is you just make a longer queue. You know, instead of putting two or three guys in your queue... Make sure it's filled up almost to the number of picks away that you are from yours, if that makes sense. But in any event, it highlighted something. Because when those eight picks came off the board, I had a choice. I had a choice of taking guys that I thought would be off the board sooner that I, weren't, that I simply wasn't that interested in, or take the guys that I really like, that I thought would be coming off the board a little bit later, and just sort of swallow that pill. Most of the time in those spots, I take the easy path, the path of least resistance, which is take the guy that you thought would be off the board, but isn't, and just deal with it. Now, in this particular case, I did that twice. I took Jonathan Isaac, who I thought would be off the board by then, and I took Julius Randle, who I thought would be off the board by then. 
Interestingly, one of those guys turned out to be a great pick before getting hurt. The other one turned out to be a brutally awful one before I ended up trading him. The point I wanted to make here, because, and this actually is a really nice way to illustrate it, is, yeah, you could hit on half of them. Yeah, you could hit on both or potentially neither. That's not even really the point. The point here is, instead of scouring, and look, Jonathan Isaac hit, but he wasn't actually a guy I was targeting this year. I don't want, listen, I, I never took credit for him having a breakout season. I was a little bit afraid of the Jonathan Isaac train this year because I figured he was going to get overdrafted. Well, he didn't in this particular league, and I was able to scoop him up. So, no, I'm not giving myself any credit for that. I'm also gonna not going to give myself... Uh, I'm not going to... I'm not going to take away any credit for not wanting Julius Randle, even though I ended up with him in one spot. So I was anti-both of these guys, and then I ended up with both of them. Okay, fine. You know, they both... One of them hit, the other one didn't. Whatever. You know, I'm one and one in that. That's not the point. The point is, instead of looking at my personal list of guys that I wanted on my fantasy team that were still on the board, but basically guys that I was targeting for later, like if the seventh round <laughs> or even later in the sixth round in a lot of drafts, I just went to the guys that were hanging out near the top of the draft board. Oh, look, these guys fell. I didn't expect these guys to fall. Whatever. That was kind of the attitude. Whatever. These guys are still there because I got nervous. It happens to the best of us. I got nervous. So today's lesson learned is when the appropriate time might be not to reach. It's not reaching if none of your guys are left on the board. But when is the appropriate time to instead of taking the guy that you think might perform a little bit better than his ADP, or you're thinking, ah, this guy's still on the board. That's unusual. I'm going to take him here because how could this go wrong? You start going to grab the guys that you think could really have a standout year. And while in the past, I think we've talked about the fact that no man's land, which for those that haven't been listening to this podcast for three years, is basically where the Yahoo pre-ranks diverge soundly from where guys actually end up at the end of the year, meaning this is where the Yahoo experts don't know any more than the average Joe, and you can pretty much pick whatever you want. That has often started around pick 70, 70, 75, 80, somewhere in that neck of the woods. In reality, you can probably extend that window a tiny bit sooner based on whether or not the guys that we've targeted on this podcast as the fallers are still on the board. The Dan Vespers Old Man Squad is a funny name that we've given to a list of guys that is, the list is just kind of humdrum. It's the guys that people don't want because they're not up and coming. It's the guys that have kind of boring fantasy games, but perhaps they excel in percentages and they're extremely efficient or they're low turnovers. It's guys like Chris Paul and it's guys like LaMarcus Aldridge and even Jimmy Butler if you go a little bit earlier in the draft. And these are the guys, it's it's Clint Capella when he wasn't hurt. It's, I mean, it, it's it, it's so easy to find these dudes because nobody's wanted them 
And so they it's Kyle Lowry. I mean, he might be the best example of all. He's falling into the 40s this year. And this is a dude that was set to take on the lion's share of the team's offense. It's the guys that do all sorts of stuff, generally are a little bit older. It's just, listen, I'm not targeting old guys in particular. It's just that those guys don't get buzz. Oh, this isn't a guy that's getting better. Everybody's looking for the guy that's getting better, thinking, oh, this is a guy who was a number 65 fantasy player last year, and he's going to be better, so I can draft him at 65, and he'll be a fourth-rounder next season. Instead, it's the guy who was number 45, but isn't getting any better, and so people are like, meh, I'll draft people that are on the upswing, and he falls to 60. Those are the guys that make the old man squad. But here's the thing. That list ultimately runs out. Because at a certain point, the easy-to-draft Tobias Harris and the easy-to-draft Jonas Valanciunas and Brooke Lopez and Rob Covington, who you can pick up at 45 or 50 or, or 55, and you're like, you know what? These guys are going to pace their way to that number with upside, turn into, and, and this is a key note, other guys that are falling, even if they hit their ADP, they don't help you that much. If you draft somebody at 65 or 70 and they miss by a half round and they're number 75 or 80, that's fine. That's fine. But you need a little bit of upside mixed in for that pick to be a difference maker. Because at that point, if you miss with your 80th pick or whatever it turns out to be, it really doesn't do you any harm. The lesson to be learned from this season is that you can actually do that a little bit sooner. Because the guys you're drafting in round six, for instance, which is, of course, picks 61 through 72, the front end of that mat round, you might find a couple of guys that fell just a little bit too far from that big first chunk. And it's why I talked about the names on my list. The, uh, Valanchunas, Brogdon, McCollum, Tobias Harris, Kevin Lovebrook, Lopez, Rob Covington, that type of guy. Usually one or two of those dudes was falling into the early 60s. In this particular draft, they didn't. And because that can happen in any one draft, you need to be able to know when that pivot point is that you abandon ship on the falling value guys and hop on the rising boat of interesting dudes that you've been gunning for. We put a lot of stock in this show on making sure you get guys and have them beat their ADP by one round. And if you know you can do that in the sixth round, it's still the play to move, and it's why I like a lot of those falling guys. But if you're in a competitive draft, and that can shift no man's land, there comes a point at which you stop taking the guy that looks like they've fallen too far, and instead you grab the guy that you've been aiming for. And now in this one, in round six, I had... A handful of guys on my, hey, can I get this guy in a round or two list? Shea Gilgis-Alexander, I was hoping to get a little bit later. Uh, Danilo Gallinari, I was hoping to get a little bit later. Kelly Oubre Jr., Gordon Hayward, I was hoping to get a little bit later. Demonis Sabonis, I was hoping to get a little bit later. But for whatever reason, in that moment, I thought, all right, you know what, I'm just going to take the guy that I thought would be off the board by now even though it wasn't a guy I was targeting. And the brilliance of this other method of knowing when to make that pivot is you start hunting for the guy with upside. 
Kelly Oubre, drafted in the 60s. A worst-case scenario for him this year was probably top 75, but he ended up at number 47. Demonis Sabonis, he was in a spot where a worst-case scenario was probably top 80. He ended up at number 45. Shea Gillages-Alexander at 46. These were all guys that beat that sixth-round ADP by a good 10 to 20 slots. Some of them going even a little bit later. Gordon Hayward was absolutely fantastic this year. He ended up at number 44, largely because he missed some time with injury, and it took him some time to kind of get his legs back underneath him. That dude was a top 25 guy when he was healthy at the beginning of the year. So you don't need to take the guy that's falling in round six or round seven or round eight. You don't have to say, okay, now we're at pick 75. I can officially do whatever I want. You make your list of the guys that are typically falling in drafts, and when that list expires, you go to your next list, which is the list of guys that you want to target that might be getting drafted anywhere between basically number 60 and number 90, and you go and you get them ahead of schedule. We will, of course, cover this concept in excruciating detail as we approach the next fantasy draft season, whenever the hell that might be. And uh, believe me, as we start to figure out ADPs of guys, we will make our list, the old man squad. I wonder where that list went. I posted it on Twitter eons ago. So if you went back into my media, right, Twitter tracks media. If you have uh, things that you had linked, right, what's what's the media from, from me? If I go back... Oh, gosh. I've posted more images than I care to mention over the course of this year. So you got to go back a long, 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 long way. Uh, but if you actually if you actually get to it, you can sort of see who we had this season. And then when that list basically expired for the first batch. Because there's a late batch of old men squad guys that you probably want to take in like the, the last two or three rounds. But there's that in-between bunch, that in-between bunch that are, is really kind of lame. And for us, Gordon Hayward was kind of the last of the early crop. Then there was this big drop-off before you got to guys like Serge Ibaka and J.J. Redick, who didn't end up doing anything, and like Rudy Gay, who didn't do anything, and P.J. Tucker, who was pretty good as a plotter. And the late guys were... Kind of kind of stinky, but who cares? Because mostly those guys get dropped anyway. But the early guys were fantastic. They almost all hit. Problem is, at some point... Mike Conley, by the way, one of the early ones that definitely did not. Problem is, when those early guys run out, you have to know when to just... Don't go to the next old man squad guy. You got to have your other list, the up-and-comers that you can get in between the early, falling, boring guys who almost always beat their ADP, and the late, whoever you want to call them. That in-between bunch is a critical portion of your fantasy process that we're going to focus on. We are going to laser focus on for next year. I think that's where we can make the most headway in our actual fantasy draft results. If I go to one of my teams from this year, one of the ones that I really liked how the draft went, the first... Uh, let's go. The first three rounds was kind of the usual fare for my team. Damian Lillard, Andre Drummond, Chris Paul, Tobias Harris, Eric Bledsoe, Jonas Valanciunas fell to me at 65. Okay, so one of my 
upper tier dudes actually fell to me there. And incredibly, the seventh and eighth rounds, I got Kelly Oubre and Gordon Hayward, which were kind of the uh, a combination of up and coming and falling guys. And so that's that area. If guys fall to you in the sixth round or seventh round, you can keep taking them, but be ready to make your pivot to an up-and-coming guy if the if the main dudes that you're looking for are not falling. Tomorrow, we will dive back into the post-mortems. We're going to finish up the Southwest Division. It's the Memphis Grizzlies on Tuesday, and then we're heading to the Eastern Conference with a division to be announced on Wednesday morning. I am Dan Baspers. Again, hit me up on Twitter at Dan Baspers or send an email to teamhoopball at hoop-ball.com if you want to get involved in our sales team over here. Check out the Hoopball Bulls podcast. Greg Mraz putting out another wonderful episode today, breaking down the last dance from last night. He's got a lot to say on that because, damn it, he was actually watching those Bulls teams and closely as a Bulls fan Back in the day. Again, check that out. That's the Hoop Ball Bulls podcast. You can follow Greg on Twitter at Greg D. Mraz, M-R-O-Z. I am again at Dan Vespers. Have a wonderful Monday. We'll talk to you guys tomorrow. So long, everybody. This has been a Hoop Ball presentation.